What we expect of women is that we'll be kind and communal. And what we expect of leaders is that we'll be assertive and ask for what we want to need. So our vision of women and our vision of leadership are diametrically opposed. And so if you're a woman who is assertive, you'll be called aggressive. You'll be asked to tone it down. If you're a woman who's warm, nice, communal, you'll be told you don't have what it takes. So what we're basically telling women is that there is no way to lead as you are. Hi, everyone. Welcome to No Limits. I'm your host, Rebecca Jarvis. If you are a frequent listener here, thank you. We really appreciate your loyalty. Thanks for coming back. And if you're new, welcome. I hope you like what you hear. So each week we work here to demystify success. It's a complicated word, but the bottom line here is that we talk to the world's most influential women across all different industries, and the conversations are meant to go beyond the resume. They are not about the talking points. We have diversions. And we look at decision-making, the trade-offs, the pivotal moments that shape careers. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Okay, everyone, you're in for a treat today because I'm here with a dear friend of mine, Alicia Menendez. She is an anchor at MSNBC. She is an author of the book, The Likeability Trap, which is brilliant. Um, She's a mother. She wrote this book. I hope you don't mind my saying she wrote this book throughout her pregnancy and now has two babies at home. And she's just an all-around great human being, a very likable human being, in my opinion. Welcome to No Limits, Alicia. Thank you so much. The the book was easier to birth than the second child. (laughs) Was it? Really? No, that's I I mean it's not true. Books are hard. (laughs) Books are really, really hard and quite the commitment. Yeah. Well, I'm so my mom, I grew up with my mom's mm-hmm. a journalist and I watched her write one of the books that she wrote and it was totally insane seeing the amount of time and energy that she had to put into that. Right. Yeah, I think I thought, "Oh, I write 1000 word pieces all the time. I'll just write 60 to 80 of those and be done." But actually carrying a thought and a through line through that length of book is and saying something that hasn't been said. How did you come to the likability trap? What was it? Yeah, um, I am a person who cares a lot about being well-liked, which is a a truth that I had to confront. I'm sensitive. I'm a sensitive kid. Um, I like people-pleasing. I like excelling at things that I do. And a few years ago, I started to realize that that, as much as I understood the benefit of that, it was also costing me something. And because of our line of work, which is in front of the camera, we get so much feedback about our looks, about the way we talk, about the way we use our hands. And I was sort of making the mistake of processing it all as fundamental truths so that it's like someone would say something to me mm. like, OK, well, I can fix that. And I was getting so turned around that I had to sort of stop and say, what am I losing in the service of trying to be an accommodating and likable person? It's obviously more than just people in our industry. Mm -hmm. You're writing about this from the vantage point of women in the workplace attempting to grow and build their careers and the balancing act that women do. On the one hand, if you're too likable or if you are likable, that gets you so far. But then there's the downside of being likable. And then on the flip side, if you're not or people say that you're not likable, 
this idea of progress and being able to build a track record for yourself is really tough. Right. I mean, what we expect of women is that we'll be kind and communal. And what we expect of leaders is that we'll be assertive and ask for what we want to need. So our vision of women and our vision of leadership are diametrically opposed. And so if you're a woman who is assertive, you'll be called aggressive. You'll be asked to tone it down. If you're a woman who's warm, nice, communal, you'll be told you don't have what it takes. So what we're basically telling women is that there is no way to lead as you are. Which one are you, Alicia? I'm both. And I think that's part of what makes this all so confusing, mm-hmm. right? I've received both I was sets, gonna say that. Both sets of feedback, which is I've been told you know, you really need to step up and step into that role. And then I've also had probably more times where I have identified problems and solutions and in identifying the problem become the problem. Mm. Um, and that because I am driven and I do want things done and I want things done in a timely manner, that that can often rub people the wrong way. I think just the truth of my ambition, I think we're just so unaccustomed to ambitious women who know what they want, that that in and of itself solicits a response. The fact that I have received both sets of feedback, the fact that you have received both sets of feedback tells you how context specific that feedback is, right? It's not just you're fundamentally this person. It's you are this person at this office. You may be in a different office where they'd be like, you have to go harder. Mm, Because it's all about the culture, whatever the prevailing culture is where you find yourself. Okay, I want to come back to the book in a minute, but let's talk a little bit about you and your story. So you grew up in New Jersey. Yes. In a political house. A very political house. My dad growing up was the mayor of Union City, New Jersey, which is where I grew up. Um, He would go on to uh, run for Congress in the 90s. Um, He's now in the U.S. Senate. And, um, you know, we didn't think of it as politics. We thought of it as public service, which I think is one of those funny things about the way we frame political service, which is we really believe that he was working on behalf of our community to make things better. And I think part of that is the start in local politics where local politics, I mean, it's it's you're sitting at a pizzeria and someone comes up to you and is like, hey, like I have an issue with my garbage can. And it's like you are supposed to address that in that moment because you are there to work in the service of people. And nothing makes that clearer than local politics. Did you want to go into politics seeing it? I did. I thought that there was just and I continue to believe there's just no better way to serve and to help people um, to use your voice on behalf of others. I don't know, though, that it's the only way to serve, right? I think because I grew up, my mom's a public school teacher. My, my dad, as you said, had, had run for office. And so I only understood that. And then it took me a long time to realize that there are other ways to uplift people's voices. There are other ways to impact people's lives. That realization took me a lot longer than it should have taken me. Oh, no, I don't know about that. I, I It's like it's it's hard to see these things when you're a kid and you says look up the to person who has known what she has wanted to do since she was a child. No, Rebecca, <laughs> if not true, actually, when I was a child, I used to tell people I wanted to be the president that um, I changed my mind about that yes. somewhere along the way. Uh-huh. Do you did you tell people you wanted to be the president? Yes, I love it. But I also feel like that is <laughs> that what is that is saying is I am a girl who wants to be in charge. Yes, definitely. And, and, and that is and you just have to assert that 
so loudly and so clearly that the easiest way to do that is to tell people. And I'm sure present. your parents were totally on board with Correct. that too. Okay, see that helps when you have parents who are <laughs> when you have parents who tell you, well, of course you can yeah, be the president sure. of the country if you want to be. Politics growing up in politics, I did not grow up in politics, but my parents were on local boards and things like that. And when I was thinking about our conversation and the conversations that we've had over the years, I remember my sister and I were sitting at a board meeting and. Um, some a woman came out of the board meeting and said that Jim Jarvis is such an <laughs> and my sister and I were sitting there and we were like what what did you just say about our dad but it's kind of weird because on a very small scale you look up to your parents when you're a kid and I think it has to be Today, actually, I would imagine it would be so much harder for a little kid to be going through with social media and just like constantly hearing about it because you might have been toting along to a parade or things like that. But I bet your childhood felt pretty, quote unquote, normal. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is it was almost most in focus when he was the mayor of our town because those are the people you go to school with. Those are the people who you see at the local diner. I mean, that is very much your little world, where in some ways, once he went to Congress, it was less relevant to our the people who were immediately around people us. People have less strong feelings, maybe, when someone's in that Correct. level as opposed Correct. to the town mayor. Right, because you don't necessarily have the same perception that you know them. And, and something I think about a lot now as a journalist is what it means to know someone, right? That it's like we spend a lot of time observing other people, reading about other people, where given the incredible responsibility of telling other people's stories, people trust us with their stories. But how do you really know someone, right? Like what is the difference between the way that with intimacy you know someone and someone who you may interact with a few times, right? You may be at that board meeting with, you may see them on television, you may read their Twitter feed. Is that really knowing someone or is that gleaning a piece of who they are? What do you think? I think it's the latter. I mean, I think having grown up with someone who I know well, who you know, you go on car trips with where you torment them by <laughs> telling them 10 minutes in that you forgot to go to the bathroom, you know, like all those <laughs> things you do as a kid, um, is that the public perception, for example, of my father is that this very sort of tough and unyielding person and he is definitely committed to his ideals but at the same time it's like he's a softy and that part that complicates the public narrative and we don't necessarily always have the time to deal with those complications with that nuance and so people sort of become a very packaged version of themselves i mean i think you see this all the time with candidates where it's like we'll, we'll say oh i wish they'd just be authentic and right. i'm not entirely sure what that really means you mm -hmm. want them to be sloppy you want you want them to to be complicated on the margins are you really ready for them to be a complicated full person in some ways i feel we're much closer to that now and i would love to go back to the olden days <laughs> of uh, canned speeches on the lawn of the White House. When I was your ways. age, politicians were on talking points. <laughs> but I actually, I remember as a kid, I would watch various politicians and wish they would break. I wish that they would break from character and do a, a cartwheel or something like that, just to shock us. That sounds like the least shocking thing, Rebecca, now. Yes. <laughs> I don't need any shock from my politicians any longer. But where along the way did you say, okay, 
maybe it's not politics. I'm going to pursue this thing called journalism. It's post-college. So I had I, I graduated from college in 05. Harvard. I, I went to Harvard. Um, I'm already less likable. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, Wait, so if a guy says he went to Harvard, does that make him more likable and a woman makes her less likable? I don't know. I think the thing that makes you most unlikable is if you say you went to school in Boston, right? <laughs> like if you talk around it. Um, Over the river? Yes. Through the woods. Um, it. I thought I was going to become an attorney run for office. I took the LSAT. I had all my letters of recommendation in. Sorry to everybody who wrote those. And um, I worked on... Wait, stop for one second. Did that, because the fact that that you're even saying that, Mm -hmm. was that a calculation at the time of, oh, maybe I shouldn't adjust the life or live the life that I want because some people took a few hours to (laughs) write me a recommendation. See, I, that is so valid to me. That's such a key thing when people think about what do you care about in life? I, I appreciate that you cared about the time that those people took, but at the same time, this is the rest of your life. Right. Correct. Be like, well, no, now, now I just have a career that I'm not that excited about because, you know, (laughs) my women's studies professor wrote me that glowing recommendation. I will say, I think at the time you got something like five years where your LSAT score would Mm. expire. And there did sort of feel like there was this drumbeat of every year I get closer to that expiration. I really better be clear that this is what I want to do because I'm never taking that test again. Sure. So after college, worked on a campaign and for the first time was much more aware of the media and the role that the media played in our political discourse. And all of a sudden was like, oh, they are doing something interesting and they have power. And in some ways they're setting the agenda by deciding what it is that they talk about and how they frame the race. Yeah. And there was a part of me that was like, why have I never entertained being a part of that? And so I think my next job was I I think I found like this job listing on Craigslist to be a booker, which is the person who books guests on a television show at a network called RNN TV. It was in Westchester. I got the job. I was reverse commuting from New York City to Westchester. And in doing that, I learned all of the mechanics of television, right? Mm -hmm. I learned what makes a great guest. I learned SOT, sound on tape. I learned MOS, man on the street. I mean, it wasn't that anybody was sitting down and telling me. It's that if you are a person who wants to learn and you're sitting in an environment where all of those words and language are swirling around you, I asked a lot of questions and I, I basically walked away knowing a lot more about producing television than I would if I tried to study it. That's so smart. And how long were you in that role? I think about a year. And then I started dabbling again in um, in nonprofit work. I worked at Rock the Vote. I worked at a, an organization that did Hispanic voter registration called Democracia USA. And all of that was good and helpful, right? I mean, all of that was about community empowerment and how you engage people who have traditionally been left out of our electoral process. And in many ways, I think that's a thread throughout the work, which is how do you reach the people that aren't being reached, right? Whether that is with a story, with with civic engagement, um, it's a huge challenge yeah. in every way. I love your Latina to Latina podcast. Thank which you is for the plug. Wonderful. Um, but I wonder, in that realm, 
reaching those who have not traditionally been reached or thought of or even contemplated in the conversation, have you found when it comes to challenging a structure that doesn't even necessarily think of reaching those people, have you found an effective way? Because I think that's a probably something that's common to everyone listening in some way. Have you found an effective way to make the case that reaching that individual is important and then also bridging that divide between a culture that has not thought about mm-hmm. that person or that identity and then suddenly saying there's value, but both sides need to see it. I think the demographics of this country make very clear in a boardroom or in a PowerPoint presentation why you need to go after that demographic. I think the bigger challenges I have run into are getting the resources that are truly necessary, which is where, I mean, I think it's very easy to get a verbal commitment. It's Mm. much harder to get a financial commitment. Um, And then really putting people in charge who understand the communities that you're trying to reach and empowering them to make decisions as opposed to giving someone a title, but fundamentally being like, but this is how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. On the book, on the likability trap, I constantly in these conversations in my own mind come back to the same sort of end game, which is you got to control things. If if you want change, you have to start it. You have to build it. You have to amass the wealth because while there are a number of, I would say, well-intentioned people and there are pockets where you can do the things you want to do unless you're the one who's sort of controlling it. I don't know. Maybe I'm too cynical. I don't see the world changing. Right, because then you're at someone's whims. And part of what you also need is a long-term commitment because reaching a new audience, reaching a new demo, I mean, that takes time. Yeah. And it takes time to get it wrong. Yeah. Right? Like sometimes you have to get it wrong before you get it right. Um, And... We very often don't give people the type of opportunity to experiment and fail and see that failure as a lesson learned that then can be reapplied in the second round. Right. It's like, well, we tried. We tried. We we did it. And it's like, no, no, no. You, You have to try several times to get it right. Yeah. And sometimes it's the luxury of working inside of a large corporation mm-hmm. because sometimes large corporations, you you can sort of do those iterations until right. something works. Sometimes large corporations are never even going to let you try it. Um, but then on the flip side, if you're out trying to do it on your own and you get the startup capital to do it on your own and it fails on time one, then you're sort of back to square one. You're not getting more money, potentially. Right. There's all different outcomes. Okay, so you do this smart thing where you get to see behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. Then you go to the Huffington Post or or between after the nonprofit world. It tells you you about my career trajectory that I could not write my own resume or Wikipedia page. But (laughs) through through that's okay. Really great people are writing your Wikipedia page (laughs) right now. I'm sure of it. Everything on there is a total fact. Right? Please get in there because there are some questionable punctuation marks in there. Okay. I, this is important, which is I, through all of my work doing um, nonprofit work, had started appearing on television 
as a representative of those organizations, so that I would talk about the youth vote or talk about the Latino vote. So I was doing that on MSNBC. I was doing that on CNN. And through that, all of a sudden, people started to take note and invite me in to have conversations about what it was I was interested in doing, what that might look like. And you can imagine the realm of feedback that I got from that. Um, but it was sort of like nobody knew what to do with me. And there was this woman named Josanne Lopez, who at the time was at CNN and was always very enthusiastic and very affirmative with me. And when she left and went to HuffPost Live and became the head of talent at HuffPost Live, she immediately called me in for an audition and just said, this isn't going to be like television. I mean, it's it's literally not. It is a digital streaming network. Um, we're going to be bringing in guests via Skype, via Google Hangout. And we want it to feel like a conversation. I went in. I auditioned. I nailed that audition. And she called me almost immediately to offer me a job as one of the inaugural hosts of that. And Part of the lesson for me there is that was the right opportunity for me at the right time. And what's very hard is that you and I have chosen to work in something that is not a meritocracy. And I had been trying for so long to force my moment. What I realize now is that opportunity had to open up. That opportunity was looking for someone just like me, someone who didn't have all of the background in traditional media, someone who was more comfortable in a conversational format, and someone who was young enough and did not have the professional record that was willing to take a risk. Because it was a huge risk. It Mm -hmm. was this thing that was wildly ahead of its time and where we would need to be experimental and iterative. And it was perfect because what I got out of that was at bats. Mm-hmm. Right. I got to sit there and read 5000 prompters. I got to interview hundreds of guests. Um, we had breaking news happen and I got to handle breaking news. If I had been inside of a more traditional structure, the most junior person does not get to do big name interviews. They don't get to handle breaking news. And so by taking the risk, there was this big reward, which is I got to try my hand at things that I would have never been able to do somewhere else. That is extremely wise. I love that you look back on it like that. I, I also... Because I know that it was frustrating in the yeah. moment. <laughs> You're like, let's, let's all sometimes... Yes, no, I mean, of course. I, the, the more of an upstart something is at this moment in media, generally, the less exposure there is. And so you're always choosing between an established path where there will be opportunities, but they may not be immediate. And there's a lot more structure on what that's going to look like or these things that are experiments and bigger risk. And you get to do a lot of things, but people may not be watching. And so that is always the trade off. How do you think through the trade off now? We'll be right back with Alicia Menendez after a word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. How do you think through the trade-off now? I look back and I'm really grateful. I'm grateful to HuffPost Live because it gave me a bunch of chances to flex all of my muscles and learn an entirely new set of skills. After I left HuffPost Live, I went to Fusion, which was the ABC Univision cable station. And we went through different iterations of my show. We tried news. We tried commentary. At some point, there was a mandate to do satire and comedy. Lesson learned there. Very <laughs> humbling. It, even if you are a funny person, like you are the person who friends are like, that's my funny friend. It is hard to be a funny person on television. And so being able to try my hand at all those things as someone who wanted to do so many things was great because I feel like I got a lot out of my system and refined it down to what it actually is that I like to do, that I want to do. Um, and so now the... The question is how you find and build an audience, understanding that that's not all going to happen on a single platform or a single medium, right? Like I used to just think, I'll, I'll just be on television. Nobody gets to just be on television anymore, right? You have to be operating across social media. You have to have a podcast. You have to have different ways in which you get to be yourself in different capacities. How do you think about then that idea of brand in this whole context. I like how both of us are like barfing over this brand. (laughs) Uh, I I feel really conflicted about it and I don't have a good answer to it because to me, a lot of the people who I see who refer to themselves as brands, it all feels so performed and formulaic. At the same time, being ourselves all the time feels like an impossible mandate. Um, being ourselves for consumption, being ourselves for consumption. I mean, in that, in that structure, what you just said is a ridiculous idea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it, and and there are people who seem to, to execute it. I, I think Chrissy Teigen, for example, is the type of person who seems to basically be living her life. There is exposure and sharing. I'm sure there are things we are not exposed to and we don't share. And she is mindful of those things as well. But she is more or less being consumed as she is. Yeah. I think it's it it requires a very special type of person to be able to do that um, and be fully aligned and fully integrated. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot more challenging if part of your brand or let's take the word brand out of it. Part of your interests are serious. If you mm-hmm. and and. Even to this idea of likability and managing a career. I remember when I started in my career in investment banking and my mom's advice to me was don't talk about your personal life when you're at work Mm -hmm. because people won't think you're a serious person. Mm -hmm. And that I actually think today 
has some challenges, but maybe fewer. I, no, that's absolutely. I mean, I don't know about investment banking per se, but I do think there's been this cultural shift towards bring your whole self to work, right? right. If you are having struggles at home, if someone in your family is sick, if there, whatever there is, just bring it and be who you are. I think there's a real challenge with that mandate, which Mm -hmm. is that if you're operating within an organization, there's normally an organizational culture, and that culture has its own sense of how you are supposed to be and how much of yourself really is allowed to come. Something I write about in The Likeability Trap is the fact that more and more companies are saying, bring your whole self to work, but not all of them are really prepared to embrace you as you are. And that's particularly true for racial and ethnic minorities when they're working in a culture or an office where they're a marginalized member of the office community. You know, it, it sounds nice, right. um, but it it can be more complicated than that. Well, and you can even find yourself in a company culture that may, if I'm giving the benefit of the doubt here, might even stand for that. But if your personal manager is not interested, right. it's going to be a major challenge. Right. Another thing I don't want to gloss over about back to your branding question is grappling with being a private person in this age yes. in which it does feel as though people are constantly rewarded for the extent to which they are willing to share themselves. I'm of the belief that there will at some point be a backswing yeah. against that, that it will become so people will be so overexposed and there will be so much sharing. They'll be like, enough with the sharing, like put the sharing away. And then there will be some interest and mystique around people who have not shared their entire lives. But you know, you and I have talked about this in the context of becoming moms and having children, which is I realize now I did not do enough thinking around how much of her life I was willing to share and enough thinking around the fact that she simply cannot have agency in that choice right now, mm-hmm. right? I mean, my, my my oldest daughter is three. My youngest is two months. And the three months is sort of in a like, take a picture of me. Well, of course, she's three. She doesn't understand Instagram. She doesn't understand my sharing that with 10,000 strangers that she doesn't know. And it, I, I've had to step back and think of the fact that, yes, she brings me joy. And yes, I want to share right. that. But it has long-term consequences too. I know. I'm. We struggle. This is a conversation Alicia and I have on a regular basis. And it, I, to me, it's a struggle because, first of all, you don't want your child to ever be used. That is like first and foremost. Then, of course, there's the security and all of that. But at the same time... She's this, your life. Right. Right. She's the most important thing. So... I think it's a conversation that we'll continue to have and think about what's the right thing. I love you, Rebecca Jarvis, because you said she's the most important thing, which is like the the sweetest, most intimate thing you said. And then I watched you be like, I need to pivot away from that (laughs) because I am not prepared to deal with the emotional rapper. (laughs) I'm, um, uh, yeah, okay. I'm really strong. Um, So, okay, let's come back to the book on that idea about strength. What do you think the end game is here? As it relates to likability? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the end game is that we all know about these traps. We all know the hot, warm thing. We all know that you're sacrificing authenticity in the interest of performing this likable person. We all know about the success penalty. I feel as though most of the counsel we've been given around how to address it goes in two directions. One is for shorthand, lean in, right? Do some sort of gender correcting performance, gender judo. I've appreciated a lot of that because it does allow someone like me to survive in real time. 
And there's that reality. The other option is this sort of let it go. Like I've got more Instagram posts saved. If you went to my saved <laughs> files, it's photos of food that I want to remember to make. And then things that are like, you do you and you don't care what they think about it or like the best part of letting, you know, all and of that. And what percent of the time are you able to actually do that? Never. Oh, I thought you would make the food. No, it's like <laughs> never. I've never made anything I've saved. Um, I, I, I. I sometimes am, and I think you and I are built exactly the same this way, when I when something is important to me and I want to get it done, mm-hmm. which is why I have tried to shift my attention away from likability and towards things like clarity. Am I being clear with people about why something is important? Am I clear with them about the ultimate outcome? And am I being self-aware? I mean, there is there is a value in understanding how the way that you are impacts other people, how that impacts a team, how that impacts the end product, as long as you can draw a line between those two things. But my big goal here is to offer a third way, which is we have to start pushing back on this concept of likability and using our collective energy to do that. I think it's something that fundamentally happens at an institutional or organizational level. What's funny to me is that when I share this idea with a room of women, their heads will nod just so enthusiastically. And then inevitably, the first question is like, "Okay, but I got this feedback at work and I would like to know how I can change to accommodate their needs. And it's like, whoa, 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 are we all just talking? But I also I get it. I get it because it's nice for me to suggest this sort of radical cultural Mm -hmm. change. But you got to go into the office tomorrow and deal with Nancy. Like those are very different things. And so if you're a woman and if you want to take tough on Nancy, Nancy, poor Nancy, (laughs) what did she do wrong? Um, There are some specific things that you can do to push back. So one of the favorite things that I heard. It was from an executive coach who said, if you're in a feedback session and someone tells you what, that you're too assertive or that you're not assertive enough, you ask compared to whom? Mm -hmm. And that that gives the person a moment to say, would I say this to somebody else in the office? Is there some bias behind this? And the second piece, which I think is even more helpful is, can you draw a line for me from the way that I act to how it impacts the results or the outcome of the work? I imagine there are times where you can draw a line, where you can say, Rebecca, I know you really pride yourself on being deliberate, but sometimes that comes across as indecision. We promised the deck to the client a week ago. It's still not in. We're on the brink of losing the account. I need you to act more quickly. Okay. Like that's an actual fair substantive Mm -hmm. piece of advice. Just saying to you, you're really indecisive. What do you do with that? Mm. Um, and, and then as much as we can say these things in the service of ourselves, I also think it's really important that we say it in the service of other people so yes. that if you were in a context where someone says to you, oh, Taylor is just so difficult that you say. People tell me this all the time <laughs> and I'm constantly pushing back on them. Constantly. Ask compared to whom? I mean, and and also help people reframe. You know, something I thought really surprised me was even the word helpful, which we use all the time and which I genuinely mean as a compliment, can reduce a woman to being in the role of a helper. So Mm. instead of saying she's super helpful, say she delivered all of the numbers for our Q1 filing. Be very specific about what her contribution was to the team, because that will help people understand her value better than you saying helpful, which means it could, you could say, oh, well, and she ran and got the coffee for everyone. That was really helpful. So those little things, I think, add up. 
and force people to be more specific, more precise about what it means when we say we do and don't like people. That's not just helpful. That's smart. <laughs> That's really smart, Alicia. You are brilliant. I like that you know that the my favorite, the best thing you can tell me is that I'm smart and likable. You've used both of them. Super appreciate it. I Thank love you. you. Thank you. I love Thank you. I'm you. begging for it. What is the worst advice you've received along the way? I've received so much bad advice. And as a fan of No Limits, I knew you would ask that question. And and so I've really been thinking about it. And what I realize is it's less any single piece of advice I've been offered and more my own misunderstanding at the beginning of my career that I needed to take every piece of advice. Mm. So when That's I started great. in television, I was with one executive and she was like, you know, your hair is too long. It's what you look like a child. You need to cut your hair. So I, I walked we all out, did it. Yep. I walked out of that meeting. I cut my hair. I got myself a very poorly fitted blazer. And then the next meeting that I walked into, same network, different executive. The person was like, what did you do to your hair? Oh, my God. And I said, well, I cut it because the, the person I met with on Tuesday told me to cut it. She's like, why? And I didn't learn it in that moment. It would take many times. <laughs> many of, bad haircuts Many later. bad haircuts later. <laughs> um, that, I, that I would come to understand that... There, you can say thank you and take it into consideration. You don't need to internalize every single piece of advice that you're given. And it's not gospel. I think that's where along the way, yes. I think I realized, and I think this is a turning point for me at my career, mm-hmm. you start to realize people throw advice out and they're not even thinking about it that much. They might just be putting it out there because it's something to say. Yep. Yep. I also think very often there there are things that happen in the workplace where someone can be in the wrong role. Yeah. And that is such a hard thing to contend with because the, the person may be a great skilled person, but they're in the wrong job. But you want to maintain headcount, so you keep them in the role. And that's, I think, oftentimes the moments that people get the most of that feedback because you can't actually solve the problem. You can't align their skill set with a role. So instead, you're like, what if you spoke up more in a meeting? What if you used your hands less? Like all of a sudden it becomes around all of these auxiliary things instead of the core issue because you can't fix the core issue. Can I tell you my best piece of it? Yes. Okay. Two things I've been thinking about a lot lately. One is Anne Choquette, who you know. Of course. Has a book, The Big Life. And I believe in there she writes, a big life is a messy life. And I've been thinking about that so much because, as you know, I just moved here with my two little kids. I had emergency dental work last week. I didn't get to go on the airplane on the flight I was supposed to come on to move because I ended up in the ER with an eye issue. Oh my God. Like my body was clearly freaking out. And you had a kid two months ago. And I had a kid two months ago and it's all messy, right? What it looks like and what it is is new baby, new book, new television show, rah, rah, rah. And all of that is true. And I have these babies that I love and this husband that I love, but it's sloppy all the time, right? Like there is just so much running out of the house and screaming over the shoulder. Like there's breast milk in the fridge. I don't know how much, you know, like it's, it's a lot of that. And just, and just hoping that things sort of land and being forgiving with myself as a person who likes things a certain way, that they're not always going to be a certain way. Second piece of advice. I, when I left Fusion and wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do next, I knew that I was working on this book. I knew that I was going to work on a television pilot. I was so afraid of disappearing. 
And I said to my friend, Janet Mock, I was like, I just, I, you know, I feel like I'm going underground. I'm gonna, is everybody going to forget about me? And she said, no, you're cocooning. And I loved so that, good. that it wasn't that I was disappearing. It's that I was, I was metamorphosizing. Metamorphosizing. Thank you. <laughs> and I think for those of us who are on a 10-year plan and imagine that 10-year plan one way, it can be very helpful sometime to take a little time away and rejigger. Madam Butterfly, that was beautiful. <laughs> I you. think it's really great. Um, thank you for joining me, Alicia. Thank you so much. So fun to be on No Limits. This was really fun. The book is called The Likeability Trap. The podcast is called Latina to Latina. Thank you. And, and the MSNBC show is as yet unnamed. But it will be with Alicia Menendez. <laughs> Hello. Thank you. Thanks, Rebecca. A shout out to the team who helps make this happen each and every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and thanks to ABC Audio as well. We'll see you all next week.